0: Hey, everybody. Welcome. As we continue our journey that we're calling King Jesus. We're looking at the book of Colossians in the New Testament, this letter from Paul to the church in Colossae, and he's writing this group of people. He's writing this church uh, to encourage them in their faith in Jesus and also to warn them about some false teaching that uh, he's heard about from Epaphras, their leader that has come to Paul in Rome and given him a report about uh, the church in Colossae. So uh, we've said that the theme of Colossians is the the Supremacy and the Preeminence of Jesus. Uh, it is just a Jesus-saturated uh, book, short book, but Jesus-saturated. And Paul says in uh, chapter one of Colossians, he said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. He's saying that if we look at the person and the work Uh, the teaching of Jesus, then we see what God is like. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. He says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So if you want to know, if you want to discover who God is, what God is like, you look at the person of Jesus. And so Paul writes this short letter to the church in Colossae to encourage them and also to warn them against false teaching. And uh, it's interesting, uh, before we get to Colossians, I want to read you a warning that Paul gave in the book of Acts, not to the church at Colossae, but to some elders in Ephesus. And you can find this in Acts chapter 20, and I'm just going to read it uh, for you. Uh, Beginning verse 27, Paul says this, he's talking to these Ephesian elders, and he warns them here, um, In chapter 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So, in Paul's own ministry to this uh, group of Ephesians elders, he warns them. Hey, be ready, because after my departure, I'm sure that there's going to be other strange teachings and those that want to twist the truth of Jesus. And I want you to be ready. I want you to be warned about that. Uh, Paul tells the leaders um, of churches in Titus chapter one, he instructs elders. He says, elders need to be those who hold to hold fast to the word. Uh, Verse 9, he says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Again, a message to elders there from Paul. And you see that the instruction there is for elders to both give instruction as well as be able to rebuke error. And that's exactly what we see uh, here in this next section of Colossians as we look at it today. Uh, In fact, it picks up a pattern that we saw in uh, chapter one, verse 28. In chapter one, verse 28, uh, Paul says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone Everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. Um, You notice there that he says, as we proclaim Jesus, there's two aspects of that proclamation. There's number one, the warning everyone. And then secondly, the teaching everyone. And that pattern is exactly what we find beginning in chapter two, verse four of our passage here today. We see this pattern of where, first of all, Paul is going to warn the church and then he's going to teach them. And then again, he's going to warn them a second time and then teach them. So um, just an interesting pattern that we see taken from verse 28. So open your Bibles and follow along with me. Uh, we're going to flip to some other places today, but uh want to begin in chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 4. I'll just read through verse 7 for now, and we'll talk about those, and then we'll pick it up in verse 8 uh, in a minute. So follow along with me here, um, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Paul says this I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We'll just stop right there for now. And again, you see uh, here in this passage in verse 4, we get the warning. And then in verses 5 through 7, we find the teaching. Okay, so first of all, there, beginning with the warning in verse 4, he says, uh, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this. What is he saying? Well, he's referring to everything he said before. He's saying all the the things that I've said about Jesus, his supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus, how uh, all wisdom and knowledge is bound up in Jesus. I say this, the excellencies of Jesus, in order that no one may delude you or deceive you. So Paul's strategy here uh, to help them avoid false teaching is to remind them of all that Jesus is, so that if they could get a hold of all that they have in Jesus, they won't be tempted by false teaching. Uh, They will remember the truth of Jesus, and they won't even be tempted to be drawn away to false ideas. Um, He uses the word here in verse 4, delude. I say this in order that that no one may delude you. Some translations uh, have translated that deceive. That might be in your translation. I say this in order that no one may delude or deceive you. And what is deception? Uh, Well, deception is that holding up a lie as the truth. And really this goes back uh, to the very beginning of scripture, doesn't it? Uh, That the enemy, the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter three, uh, he comes and he comes to deceive Adam and Eve. And what is the enemy's tactic in deception or in leading humanity away from the goodness of God? Well, the first thing we see in Genesis chapter three, verse one is the enemy comes and casts doubt on God's word. Verse one of Genesis three, he says, did God, did God really say that, that you shouldn't eat from the fruit of this tree? Did God really say he cast doubt on the word of God in order to deceive Adam and Eve? That's this first step in his strategy. The second step, though, of deception comes in verse 3, where uh, Eve actually adds to God's instruction. Eve says, yeah, not only uh, can we not eat of the tree, but we also mustn't touch it. Well, if you look back at God's instructions, that's not what God said. And so we see that deception comes not only by casting doubt on God's word, but also sometimes adding to God's word, which is what we're going to see further in Colossians as we move forward next week. But then there's a, there's a third strategy and that comes in Genesis chapter three, verse four, when Satan tells Adam and Eve, he says, no, you're, you're not really going to die because God knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll, you'll come alive. You'll be like God. And so what is the enemy saying there? He's saying, God's holding out on you. Man, if, if you'll just go your own way, life will actually be better. And that's still a strategy of deception today that, hey, if 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 you just kind of do your own thing, or if you just kind of go with the ways of the world, or you, you kind of adopt this teaching over here, you'll be more happy. Life will go better for you. If you just kind of you know do away with this part of the truth of what God has said, and just kind of make your own path. So we can be deceived by doubting God's word, taking away from God's word, adding to God's word, and also just doubting the goodness of God, that he has our best interest in mind. He has not given us his word. He's not given us these commandments to harm us, but to protect us, not to make us unhappy, but to make us satisfied, to make us fulfilled so that we might have uh, the life that he designed us for. Um, Paul has this same concern in second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, as he writes to that church uh, with a similar uh, temptation towards false teaching. Second Corinthians eleven three three says this says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, there's that word again, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that's also Paul's heartbeat here as he writes to the Colossians, that they not be led astray, but that they stick to the truth that they've been taught in Jesus. So he says, I don't want anyone to delude you, but look at how they... He's concerned that they might be deluded or deceived. It's not by some crazy thing, but he actually describes it as plausible arguments there's there's no one coming up to uh the colossians and saying hey you know that jesus stuff is stupid you ought to just come do this no it's actually plausible arguments it's believable arguments that hey we know you have jesus but there's some some secret knowledge or some other things that you really know that you really need to know it's plausible arguments could be likely but nevertheless their teachings that would not take these colossians deeper into Jesus but that would ultimately take these believers away from the from the truth and purity of Jesus one of the first deceptions one of the first heresies in the early church was a heresy called docetism and docetism comes from the greek word dacheo, which means to see or to seem or to appear and the heresy of that early church, those docetists, was that, you know what? Jesus came to this earth, and, he, and he's God, but he wasn't truly man. He just appeared, dacheo. He just, we saw him to be human, but he wasn't truly human. And the leaders of the church met and decided, no, that that's heresy. That God came in the flesh, and it was true flesh. It was true humanity. He wasn't just putting on a costume of the, hum, the humanity of, uh, of Jesus, but he was truly God and he was truly man. And had the, the believers in the early church believed that Jesus just kind of appeared as, as human, uh, they would have gone down a heretical path, a path that the church said ultimately uh, a, would, not, would not save them. He goes on after he gives them this warning, after giving them the warning in, in verse four, he goes on to give them the teaching in verses five through seven, uh, verse five, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness and the firmness of your faith in Christ. See, uh, paul's he knows that they're not yet uh too far gone. He sees their their faith is in good order, or he hears from a that their faith is in good order and they're firm in Christ, nevertheless, he's concerned that the in that this false teaching might make inroads uh into more of them or in into the church more influentially and so uh he says, I hear good things, I just don't want you to get swept up.' in something untrue. You know, as a pastor and my wife is a, as a counselor, oftentimes when, when people come and talk to us for marital counseling, um, it's too late. Things have gotten so bad, um, that it's hard to untangle it and it's, it's hard to heal from it. So you really need the counseling. You really need the marriage counseling before things get back, get so bad that they're, you know, unable to come back to health. And that's really Paul's heart here is he's, you're, you have a firm faith. Your, your church is in good order, but I want to give you these things now so that you don't get off course. And so you don't imbibe this false teaching. Verses. Six and seven, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I focused on these two verses uh, sunday Sunday morning in our tailgate. Uh, service so I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on them here. But uh just to note a few things. Uh this language here, uh as you received Christ Jesus, uh that's not just talking about, hey, I received Christ Jesus into my life, but that's actually language here for them, hearing the, the gospel, hearing the good word of Jesus and embracing that news, that tradition, if you will, that apostles teaching. You see uh, the same thing kind of pointed out in another phrase in verse seven, where it says, uh, gr- be built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So he's saying the Jesus that you received, the gospel that you heard from Epaphras and the things that you were taught about Jesus, keep walking in those things. Don't, don't turn away from those things. Don't add things to those and, and don't be deceived by some new teaching about Jesus that comes along. Continue in what you've embraced, and what you've received from the apostles teaching and what you have been taught um there's a church father in the fifth century named Vincent of Lorenz, and he had a a saying for what would consider what people would consider orthodoxy then is what what would be orthodox would be what all people all places have all believed what all people all places have all believed Christians, of course. And it's it's those things, it's the, it's, it's the things that Christians have believed since Jesus walked this earth and taught the apostles and the apostles then taught others. Those are the orthodox, those are the main things that we are to grab a hold of and not let go and not let other ideas uh, infiltrate or take us away from the truthfulness of that message. Those are things like the truthfulness of scripture. Uh. That God is Trinitarian, that we worship one God in three persons, that Jesus is the Savior, fully God, fully man, that we as humans are sinners in need of a Savior, in need of a deliverer from our sin and, and disease and the brokenness of this world that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to others and that he ascended to the father in heaven, that he's going to come back to judge this world and to set up a new kingdom. Those were the things that all Christians everywhere believed throughout all time. And even today To So he, Paul is writing them the, the things that you've received Uh, Continue in those things, just as you were taught, just as the apostles handed down. And uh, he also, of course, urges them not just to receive the teaching, but to walk in it. Or some translations say, live in that faith, walk out that faith, live in that faith, or be built up in it, established in it, and then abounding in it through thanksgiving. So then we come to verse 8, which is the next um, warning verse. And so again, we see this pattern of one verse of warning and then the following verses of teaching. So the warning uh, in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there again, the warning. And you notice here in verse 8, he repeats this idea of deceit. And in this verse, he calls it empty deceit or some translations hollow deceit. But he says, uh, not only is it deceit, but it's something that you're being held captive to uh you're being imprisoned by you're you're held captive uh, and put into bondage by this false teaching and he says. It it comes by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, Paul's not talking here, I don't think, about just the philosophy of the Greek philosophers. And it's not talking about all philosophy. He's talking about bad philosophy. C.S. Lewis is the one who said uh, good philosophy must exist because bad philosophy is out there. And so uh, the emphasis here that Paul is giving is that this is human Tradition. He goes on to describe it in in two other ways. He says, it's according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So let's look at those uh, first for a second. He says, uh, you're being deceived or you're tempted to be deceived by these things that are according to human tradition. Not the news that you've heard, not the gospel that you've heard, but it's human tradition. That's what these Gnostics and other uh, new false teachers were infiltrating with, a, a human teaching. And secondly, uh, he describes it as, as according to elemental spirits of the world. Now, that's, that's a hard uh, phrase, words there to translate. So we'll come back to that in just a second. But notice how he describes it thirdly there. He says, it's not according to Christ. He's saying, hey, if, if folks are teaching you something that hasn't been handed down to you that you don't see in Scripture, and it's something new or supposedly better, don't believe it. Because it's not according to Christ. We have a wonderful example of some folks in the book of Acts that took uh, the teaching of Scripture seriously as they heard things. They're called the Bereans. Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 11, there's a wonderful compliment paid to them in Acts 17 here. Verse 11 says... Uh, These Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What were they doing, these Bereans? They were saying, okay, uh, we've heard this from the apostles. Now we're going to look at the scriptures. At this point, it was the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And so we're going to test what you are teaching according to the word of God. And that's a wonderful principle for us to to eagerly go to the scriptures and test any teaching we hear according to what God has revealed in the Spirit-inspired scriptures. And Paul says, the things that you're hearing that are floating around Colossae that you're you're tempted toward— are not according to Christ. They're according to human tradition. And then there's this, let's go back to this word, uh, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And again, this is hard to interpret. Some uh, people have said what this means here is kind of the elementary ABCs, or you might have a footnote in your Bible that says the elementary principles of the world. This, you're, you're just kind of being uh, lulled by something that's elementary, just the beginning ABCs of kind of worldly stuff. And that's one possibility. Possibility, But there's another possibility, uh, and the reason it's translated spirits is because these things that, that are coming around that you are tempted to be taught to, the false teaching, is actually the work of demonic uh, powers. The false teaching is not just some blatantly human tradition thing, but it's also the result of demonic influence. Spirits of this world, and the reason I think that's a good interpretation is for two other places in this passage, uh, verse ten as well as verse fifteen uh, in verse ten, he writes that uh, that we've been filled with Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. And we saw back in chapter 1 that these ideas this idea of, that that Christ is the head of all rule and authority is talking about the invisible world it's talking about the spiritual world where there's angels and demons and and so Paul also in Ephesians 6 gives these descriptions as principalities and authorities and and rulers in the heavenly realms and it's it's both angels and demons so I think that what's happening uh in verse 8 uh with this element elemental spirits of the world is he saying that this is a a deceitful, demonic, false teaching. That's why he goes on in verse 10 to say that Christ is the head over it all. Even though uh, there's demonic spirits and demonic teaching out there, Christ is head over all. and, And he will, as we see in verse 15, defeat it. He will disarm all demonic powers. And so skipping over quickly to verse 15, uh, it does say that that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. There's those words again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Um, So what we have to realize is that these false teachings are not just the work of kind of humans that have um, gotten things wrong, but behind the humans, there is this demonic and in fact, evil, false teaching. We know elsewhere, Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 6, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There's a spiritual reality to this warfare that we're in. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the spirits and the the powers uh against god. Uh, this being pure to the teaching of Jesus and following Jesus uh, with firmness and perseverance is a spiritual battle and teaching this false teaching is demonic. So, again, after he gives them this warning in verse 8, he goes on again to give them more teaching. So, let me read um, verse 9. Verse 9 says, For in him, Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Man, underline that, highlight in your Bible. Boy, if there is ever a verse that talks about the deity of Jesus, it's right here. We saw another one back in chapter 1, verse 19, where it says the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. And here, chapter 2, verse 9, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in human form. The deity of Christ and he says, not only is Jesus fully God, but verse 10, he goes on to say, this, this, this God, God's son, Jesus, who has come, not only is he fully God, but and you have been filled in him. The Jesus who is fully God, you have been filled in him who is head over all rule and authority. This God that has come to this earth has now united you as believers in Christ and you are filled with him. As we talked about last week, you have his presence within you. The Holy Spirit is influencing us and, and guiding us through his presence. So he goes on, uh, not only are we filled in him, but in verses 11 and 12, he continues to give them their um Benefits that they have because of who who Jesus is. He says in verse eleven, "In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ." So, what is he saying there? He's saying the the Jews were circumcised as a as a sign of God's adoption to them, and he's saying you have been circumcised not with hands, not a physical circumcision, but as Romans uh, two verse 19, says uh, that believers are not believers because they've been circumcised, but because they've been circumcised in their heart. This is the language of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, where God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, a a heart of flesh. Um, And so if you have embraced Jesus, you are filled with Jesus, you have the spirit of God in you. uh, And you also have this new heart that God has given to you. Verse 12, he goes on, uh, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Christ has stamped us. He has sealed us. And we also, because we are united with Jesus, have been buried in his death, pictured in baptism. And we have been raised with Christ because of faith. In the working of God who raised him from the dead, because we've embraced Jesus, we have died with Jesus and we have been raised to new life with Jesus. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, you, Excuse me, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, verses 13 through 15 describe us before we've come into a relationship with Jesus, and they describe us with some not very pleasant terms. It says uh, that before we came to faith in Christ, we were dead. Dead. Not only were we dead spiritually, but we were also offenders. We were trespassers and we were debtors. We had a, a debt toward God because of the sins. The wages of sin is death. We had a debt that we owed to God and then finally, according to verse 15, we were, we were captive by rules, the rulers and authorities. We were uh, captured uh, in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan himself. And so as Paul lists uh, who we were, he says these things not to say you still are these things, but he says these things to, to let us know, but this is what Jesus has done for you. Though you were once dead, check it out, verse 13, you have now been made alive together with Christ. And though you were a trespasser, you've been forgiven. And your debt has been canceled. Jesus nailed your debt to the cross. He, he took this, this receipt, this invoice, I guess it would be, this invoice that you had, this debt that you have got, and he nailed it to the cross, forgiving it. Therefore, all your debt has been paid in Jesus. And not only that, but when Jesus went to the cross and he paid that debt, he also disarmed all the enemy forces triumphing over them through his cross and resurrection, defeating darkness. So that because we are united with Jesus, though the enemy's minions fight us, though demons may attack us, we have authority and power because of the cross of Christ and how God has defeated the enemy Through Jesus. Why does Paul say all that? He says that because he wants Colossians. Look at what God has done for you in Christ. This is who you were and this is who you are now. Therefore, what else do you need? Don't be pulled away by any other kind of false teaching because this is the magnitude of the good news and the truth of who you now are because of the work of Jesus. So you don't have to add anything to Jesus. Don't take anything away from Jesus. There's nothing else that you need other than Jesus for life and eternal life. You know, um, we're always looking uh, in this day and age and in our culture for the upgrade, aren't we? Hey, my phone is, you know, uh, iPhone six, I'd really like to have the 10 or the 11. We're always looking for the upgrade. We're always looking to see if we can get that better cable provider or a a newer or a better car or something like that. All the stores that we go into the, the signs around the products say new and improved. Nobody ever, nobody ever says, Hey, here's an old product one that hasn't been improved. We live and we swim in a culture where everything is newer and more improved. But the, but the scriptures teach us that you can not improve upon the gospel of Jesus. There's no way to up, upgrade the good news of Jesus. In fact, every person that's tried to upgrade the gospel of Jesus has actually downgraded it. You can't improve upon Jesus. The news that we need is not new news, but it's that age old story, that ancient gospel story of God who has come in Jesus. In the book of Jude, it says that he writes, Jude writes and he says, I really wanted to write you about our common salvation but instead, I felt it necessary to write to you, to con- appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. You can't improve upon it, but you can embrace it. You can contend for it and you can uh, hold to it so that you won't be swept away and swept up with other novel and new teachings of the day. Because what our culture tends to call enlightenment, the scriptures would actually call deception. So I want to help us um, by warning us today of how we might possibly um, be drawn towards deception. I think there's three factors, at least today, that kind of lend themselves to our defection and our deception. And those three things are individualism, experientialism, and presentism. Now, let me kind of explain and define those things and how it might pull us towards error. The first one is individualism. We we live in a highly individualistic culture, and we can uh, even uh, in our faith kind of have an individualistic approach where it's just kind of me and Jesus, and I don't really need other people, or I, I don't even need to get to church. Uh, I, I can just kind of do this me and my Bible and Jesus. So one of the things I'm concerned about this COVID uh, season is that we're getting kind of used to just doing church at home. And I'm concerned that our individualism and now this quarantine is, is perhaps tempting us towards even more of an individualistic faith. But folks, the, the Christian faith has always been Communal. We can't be individualistic in our faith with Jesus. That individualism uh, individualism plays right into the next. Uh, potential danger, and that is what I've called experientialism. And that is where faith and religious truth is just about experience, and it's really just kind of how I feel, and really the doctrinal and the 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 truth claims are just kind of less important if I really feel like I have an experience that's authentic and kind of moves me deep in my soul, so it's not uncommon today for people to choose their, cho- their churches and to uh, uh, select their faith group based upon music and based upon experience and an ex, uh, some type of emotional experience rather than the truth of the gospel or doctrinal things theological things that's dangerous Yes, the Christian faith is experiential. It involves our emotions. We we are not just brains on a stick, but we we are also surrounded. We are also uh, swimming in a culture of experience and feelings and emotions. And if our our emotions are what drive our search for truth, and our uh, our credibility or the the uh, what makes something true we're in a dangerous place thirdly presentism presentism may not be a word uh, maybe you want to call it nowism um, but what that means is what CS Lewis called is we're kind of chronological snobs and we just kind of think that our age is the best that everything that's newer is truer That we've finally, after 2,000 years, like we know best about the gospel and we know best about the church. This is kind of the enlightened age. And man, that also is a dangerous, dangerous um, culture, a dangerous um, environment to swim in when you think about the truth because according to scripture, you can't improve upon the gospel. You can only contend for the faith. So if you are caught up in today and this moment, and you think that this moment is the best, then you'll grab the newer and truer and the latest and the more novel. But we as followers of Jesus, are people not just of this moment, but we're people of history and we're people of tradition. And so we look back and see what has the church taught? What have believers believed, not just in 2020, but over the last 2,000 years? We're fooling ourselves if we just think we can just kind of figure it out on our own, by ourselves, without the body of Christ present and without the body of Christ in ages past. So, how do you fight uh the deception or the um, the pull to individualism experientialism and presentism? you fight it with three other things: the body, the community of christ um theology, doctrine, and history that keeps us not just tied to the now but rooted to the past and rooted the ancient truths, the eternal ancient truths of Jesus. Don't be deceived. Get to know this word. Get to know it in community with others. Learn theology. Learn history. Learn the history of the church because a lot of the novel ideas that are floating around today are just recycled false teaching from previous ages. So Paul says, I... I want to commend you for your faith. I want to commend you for your steadfastness, but don't be deceived. Pray with me. Father God, we uh just confess that our hearts are prone to wonder, that we swim in an age and a time where there's a lot of options. And it's sometimes hard to decipher the truth from fiction or fantasy. And Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would seal us and sanctify us and fortify us by the truth of your word. That we would know the truth so that when the false ideas and the false teaching comes, we would be able to sniff it out and discern it and call it for what it is. God, we thank you for the beauty and the fullness that we have in Jesus. And we just pray that you would protect us in him and that we would carry on and press on in our faith in him. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.